for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Pete Nordstrom, President and Chief Brand Officer of Nordstrom and fourth generation member of the Nordstrom family. Nordstrom has been a retail innovator in its approaches to operations, including customer service and merchandising. I wanted to ask Pete how the company's unique strategies have held up in the past unprecedented three years. I also have to ask how Nordstrom is approaching the holiday shopping season. Our budget-conscious gifters top of mind. Welcome, Pete. Hey, thanks, Jill. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you and almost intimidated a fellow podcaster. Tell me about the Nordy Pod. Well, first of all, you don't need to be intimidated. The one <laughs> thing I will tell you is the lead up to this this morning, your guys' level of professionalism from the whole production standpoint is off the charts. I think hey. <laughs> there's some there's some notes we can take here. So on to the Nordy Pod. And maybe learn Thank a little something. You. That's that was pretty good. So we're off to a good Sarah, start. Sarah, podcast producer. Nice anyway, job, knew? Sarah. We are next yeah, level. Really <laughs> you, you are amazing. Well, how did Nordy Pod come to be? It's a newer venture, yes. And you are hosting. You've had some amazing guests. Let's just say Jessica Alba, Steve Madden. Uh, who else did I see on there? We had Sue Bird, this most recent one. Um, if you don't know who she is, she's the best women's basketball player of all time, which was that was really fun for me. Um, you know, we had Leonard Lauder before that. We've had Mickey Drexler. We've, you know, and then, you know, may, part of the, the other thing that's been really fun is people that uh, people wouldn't know. And that's people that work here or customers. We, we, we've done a lot of that type of stuff too, getting input from all kinds of people, um, really giving, I think, kind of a 360 view of, how things go at Nordstrom, what we're all about, what we're working on, and, and you know, our mission. Yeah. What are you finding out about who the listener is? Is it is it a, your customer? Is it, I mean, these are celeb types. Is it just far and wide? Well, far and wide is your customer, but who's listening? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know if we know exactly. I mean, I think I've, I've scored pretty well with my friends and family. It's, I, in my little cocoon of a world, it feels like it's, it's people are listening to it and they seem to like it. But, um, uh, you know, I think going into it, the idea was that we have millions of customers. And a lot of customers really like Nordstrom for all kinds of personal reasons and feel a personal connection to it. And, it you know, we're super grateful for that. And so... You know, I think it's always a good business strategy to to try to get yourself as connected to customers as you can and, you know, bring them in, be transparent about your values, about what you do, you know, kind of warts and all. Uh, I think the authenticity of a brand is really important. I think the way that the, the values of a company are lived uh, are important. And we've, we've learned that lesson, you know, going through the pandemic, I think in particular, I mean, just more modern times that people want to be affiliated and associated with a company that resonates with them and is relevant to them. So it's a pretty wide net from that point of view. I, I, but I'd say it probably start with Nordstrom customers, Nordstrom fans. And then depending on who the guest is, yeah, you're right. There, they, there might be people that want to listen in, that aren't necessarily big Nordstrom customers, but maybe they're a fan of Superd or you know whomever, and um, so that's that's great too. For sure. Well, it's such a it's interesting how you've really um, balanced. Like you're a huge company, and yet it has like 
the family feel? And I think it's about, like you said, how you approach customers or that customer service, but also um, the fact that <laughs> you're a fourth generation Nordstrom family member. But anyway, it, it's kind of almost, I don't know, when you said Leonard Lauder, I was like, there's something there in the way that they, it's been a family, like the family's very apparent or involved there. And also it's a huge influential company. I just feel like it's a, I don't know, it's a happy place. How are you balancing these worlds? You mean in terms of being a, a family business to some degree? Yeah, like having a family. Do you think that you have a family feel? <laughs> oh. I do, but in a well, good that, way. Well, I think that's great. Um, I think we do, but I don't think it's because of people named Nordstrom. There's there's only a hand, small handful of us named Nordstrom <laughs> that work at a company of 70,000 people. So whatever people think about Nordstrom is is really 100% about the interactions they've had with whomever at point of sale. And that that could be online, their experience there. It could be in a store. It could be about something that happened 25 years ago. or And even some of it can be anecdotal stories that get shared and told about Nordstrom and the reputation we have around service. So, yeah, I mean, I think it, it is about people and there is a, a sense of authenticity and pride around that, but it isn't so much about people named Nordstrom. It's yeah. it's more of a, it's more just that it, these are a bunch of real people doing their best every day that have, you know, a common goal. Am I right that you kind of started on the the shoe department floor? Like you really worked your way up and and I'm sure that that was instrumental in the way that you um I guess think of customers or prioritize customers. Yeah, it's true. So, um my my journey isn't unique. If you had my brother's cousin on here, they would tell you a, a similar story. We were raised all in similar ways, but we started in the shoe department, and uh, I was I started in the stock room during the summers when I was young, you know, 12, 13 years old. And then I started selling shoes, women's shoes when I was 16. Again, this is during this are during the summers. It was my summer job. It was all in service of not not necessarily meeting, getting a bunch of experience because someday I'd sit in the job I'm sitting in. It was purely like, I wanted to be able to buy a car. My parents weren't going to buy me a car, so I had to earn money to buy a car. And this was a pretty good job I could get. So, you know, it was a different story back then. But no, that that's how we started. And the other thing I'd say about, you mentioned, you know, as, as a connection to our service ethic, that was an explicit thing from my dad. He was like, hey, look, if you're going to work here, you're going to work in shoes because it's the hardest thing. And it's the most service intensive thing. There is no other place in our business where a customer, you know, they the, a customer in shoes relies on the salesperson. They can't self-serve. So, and you're literally on your hands and knees in front of a customer, like putting shoes on their feet. It is the most service intensive thing and so it's a great lesson, if nothing else. So I'm not going to give you the easy route and let you go do something else. Although I'm not sure what the easy route is here. All the jobs here have their own challenges. But shoes is where we started. Yes. yes. Oh, I didn't know it was the hardest. I've worked the shoe floor when I was a teen. And you did? Wandering the, the stock room for that damn size. <laughs> yes. So where did you work? What store? Oh my gosh, a couple of places. One, I guess it's like known for shoes was like Champ Sports. But then I feel yeah. like um, I was at a department store you were. at some point. But definitely Champ Sports. I rem- It's embarrassing. I remember one time somebody was calling shoes like cool and they were like, these are tight. <laughs> I was like, oh. I'll get you another size. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that sticks don't, out Don't my worry, head. they stretch out. It's okay. <laughs> 
Yeah. Totally. I'm so lame. Oh my God. But yes, that's good to know. <laughs> I got my, I paid my dues, but to help well, me. You know, but, this, but on that though, the, the shoot thing, when I talk about service, again, you think about it, a customer can come into a store and they can look around and they can pick out a shirt and they can buy it. And you know, someone's got to ring it up for them, but they don't necessarily need someone to go in the back room and get them things and, you know, measure their foot or put a shoe. I mean, there's a lot that goes into the shoe part of it. Um, so I, yeah, I, it, it's not to be dismissive of the challenges of the other divisions that they have to go through, but I think at least, you know, symbolically, uh, the, the shoe thing is a very high touch proposition that really requires a level of commitment and service and, you know, which, <laughs> and humility that you learn from that, um, which, which is super helpful. Yes. Well, tell me about, I guess, how you, your theory, your thought behind customer service. Is it more than just the customer is always right, like old school? Um, and I, I just know like the amazing return policy. Like anyway, it just, it seems next level compared to what was out there. And I don't know if everybody else has caught up maybe, um, you know, in the last three years, I'm hearing more things in terms of loyalty and I'm hearing more things, um, more catering to the customer than has been there before. But what, what's your overall approach or um, motto behind it? Do you have about 30 minutes we could really... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's a, a lot That's a heck it. of a question. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, look, and I, I think what was learned by experience in our company years and years ago, I mean, this business was started by my great-grandfather in 1901, and he didn't come to it with some preconceived idea about retailing, you know, something that he learned in school or anything like that. He just instinctively reacted to what seemed to work. And customers, if you treated them well, they seemed to like that. I mean, it, it, I know that sounds kind of obvious, but it wasn't much more sophisticated than that. Then over time, I think what we learned was, you know, having good, friendly uh, customer policies and, and being helpful and kind to customers pays off. It, it enables you to do more business and enables you to engender uh, loyalty with customers. And so by the time we've come along, that train was clearly on the tracks that the biggest differentiator we have is the way that we serve customers. And I think if you talk to any retailer, they would say the same thing. It's not a secret. I mean, everyone knows that service is a really important element to that. So it's something that I give my dad's generation a lot of credit for, that third generation. They really took that idea of customer service and harnessed it and made it a thing and made it a common objective and a goal. And the beauty of it is the simplicity of it and also the way in which no matter where you sit in this company, no matter what you do, everyone can buy into that. Like, let's just understand what we're here to do. We're here to make customers feel good and look their best. That's it. That's Everything it. has to be in service of that. And that simplicity creates a lot of alignment, a lot of focus. Um, and I, and we've benefited from that. And, you know, I'm the first to admit that we make plenty of mistakes. I'm, I'm sure right now, somewhere in America, we're doing a lousy job for a customer and something's not going well, but you know, we, we keep working at that. We try to stay humble and focused on that. And we try to make it a differentiator for us. And, and lastly, you, you mentioned the, the return policy thing. And I, you know, if you ask people about Nordstrom, they, they talk about service and they immediately kind of go to the re, the return deal. And so for whatever the the pain that sometimes causes and the challenges that you might imagine go along with a liberal return policy, what we get for that, I, I, I think is invaluable. And um, 
There's no amount of marketing or anything you could do to engender that kind of goodwill and that kind of word word of mouth and that kind of loyalty if, in fact, we have served a customer well. When you do that, you can really see it in terms of the way that you, you just get more wallet share from that customer. So it's it's a pure business strategy. Um, I mean, my, my dad used to say this stuff. It's like, you know, what's, you know, yeah, we work on service, but it's not because we're the nicest guys in the world. It's that we're not trying to win the congeniality award. I mean, what we're, it's a business strategy. I mean, it, we, we have found and learned over time that when you're nice to customers and you treat them well, they buy more from you. So let's do that. Yes. And what has that done for you? Tell me about customer loyalty. Well, um, I don't know. I th- I think for us, it, it really helps create a sense of focus again with with our our folks. Like, why do we do these things? Why do you have me, you know, do X, Y, and Z with customers? And why do we have these kind of policies? And what what we can typically do is you can tie it back to successful salespeople because you may not know this, but our salespeople are on commission. So we. We have some salespeople that make a lot of money. They sell a lot. And there's no ceiling to this. It can keep going. And so it it kind of creates a leadership by example. So when people are all working here, you know, and everyone's working the same amount of hours, but if someone's making five times more money than they are, you, you got to believe that gets people's attention that they work with. Like, how come Jim is making five times more than me? How come he sells so much more? Well, you know. Maybe he's figured out a way to get customers to come back and ask for them. I, I know for me, when I used to sell shoes, I was always in awe of these people I work with. Like all day long, all they had was customers coming in and asking for them. They weren't waiting to try to pick up a customer somehow that was walking in and, you know, may I help you and try to get them. They had people coming in and asking for them. And that's a lot easier. And yeah, and, and, yeah, and they sell a lot more because of it. So I mean, I think you just learn um, by experience when you're in a store and you're you're serving customers that that is the way to success. Yes. How has that served you during the, all of this? I'm hearing a lot of like um, hiring bonuses, a lot of competitive co- competition. I would say in terms of retail associates right now. Um, Commission is appealing, yeah? Or how would you describe it? Yeah, it is, but it's not appealing for everybody. I mean, a lot of people don't want that accountability and that responsibility. I get it. And it's one of the things we talk to people when they start here, and if they're you know in a job that's serving customers like that, is like, th- this job's not for everybody, and it might not be for you. I mean, there's expectations that we're going to have about the way you treat customers, the way you treat each other, and that you're also accountable for a level of productivity because, you know, we're making an investment here. We're, we're, we're paying you money and, you know, we need you to deliver too. So it's, there's a lot of accountability, I think, that goes along with this. And, it, and again, it's, it's not for everybody, but we do tend to attract people that, that like that stuff. They say, you mean to tell me you guys will keep paying me if I keep selling more? I'm like, yeah. Okay. That sounds pretty good. And, you know, it just, it, it kind of goes from there. Like I was on my podcast, one of the guests I had, this guy, Jesse James Barnhold, and he's our, I think he's our top shoe salesperson now. And uh, he's hes out of Pittsburgh, I mean, of, of all places. It's, it's not our biggest store, but he sells more shoes than anybody. And to put it in context, I mean, he's going to sell something like $3 million for the shoes this year. Oh and he makes God. commission, and you start doing the math on this. Jesse James Barnhold does pretty well. <laughs> and... Um, and you know, and it's it's he's such an interesting guy. And again, it, it's it's really cool to listen to him talk about his enthusiasm for it. But he just figured out, hey, look at, I have learned that if I approach my business this way, if I if I treat it like you know I'm an owner and I'm I'm running my own business, 
that there's a lot in it for me. And so, you know, that's a great scenario when we get people to feel like not only are they doing things that's in the best search of the customer or the company, but for themselves. I mean, there's a payoff for them too. And if you can get all those things working at the same time, that is a powerful formula. Yeah, that's so interesting. Tell me about, gosh, the training that you're putting in, like offering associates. I would think that having somebody like a Jesse James um, sharing his Jesse story James. would be would be so inspiring. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of time, effort. The, there's a lot of training involved, yeah? Well, I mean, there is and there isn't. We don't do a ton of sales training. We really do very little. I mean, we probably do more now than when I was young. When I was young, there was no, there was no training. They just kind of rolled you out there on the floor and you know, yeah. <laughs> and the it's sink or swim kind of thing. And you learn pretty fast, but um, we don't do a lot of really explicit training. I, I think, you know, what we talk about is, is trying to be as knowledgeable as you can about what you're selling. Um, but it's also a, about being honest. And the thing, one of the things I learned, if you're going to earn trust with a customer, sometimes it's okay to admit that you don't know. If they ask you a question that you don't know the answer to, it's fine to say, you know what, I don't know, but let me find out. Because that's the worst thing you can do is to try to blow it by someone and fake your way through it. Because the one thing I can tell you for sure is customers are way more informed about what they're buying today than they used to be because all the information's out there. And so if you're not, if you're not pretty dang knowledgeable on the floor, it's going to feel awkward and bad that your customers know more about what you're selling than you are. So a lot of this stuff is really just about people taking their own initiative to learn. And then I think to do it in an authentic and a sincere way. So it doesn't feel like they're just following a script, but that, you know, they're, they're, again, there's an authenticity to this. So there is, there's a lot of nuance uh, to what makes successful salespeople. Um, and we're just, I think we're just super fortunate that we tend to attract a lot of these folks. And it's, it's really fun to see people like that succeed. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Well, on that note, people maybe being knowledgeable, it just makes me think of retail's evolution where maybe in-store, it's more like a showrooming experience and people are shopping and looking and touching and feeling and maybe ordering online. I mean, I was in New York when your Manhattan stores open and they're spectacular. And I, oh, I think that that was like a... like kind of an omni-channel meshing in-store online, but do you like the word omni-channel? Is that the, is that just ever, goes without saying? And um, yeah, tell me about the importance yeah. of retail. Is it more showrooming these days? Well, I, look, I think that omni-channel thing is, yeah, kind of goes without saying. It's hard to imagine being successful in retail now if you don't have multiple ways to serve a customer again on their terms, not on our terms, but on their terms. And so what we've tried to do is set up our online part of the business to dovetail seamlessly with the physical part of our business, the stores. Essentially, it's it's leveraging all these physical assets that we have, stores, people, what have you, with what digital brings, which is a huge sense of convenience and choice, which is fantastic for customers. So that, you know, I've stated the, the problem, but it's not easy to solve for. I mean, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of operational logistics that go into doing that well. And we're, you know, we haven't solved all that. I mean, I think we're clear about what good looks like, but um, we got to keep going because in a lot of ways that bar keeps getting adjusted. I mean, you think about, like, if you just take an online experience, if this were, well, like, let, let's go back, let's say it's 20 years ago, like before there was a big online experience, you could buy something in that catalog or something, you might send in a check, like in the mail. 
And if you got that item in a month, you'd go, that is fantastic. Look at this. I got this in a month with my check. Um, now, if you buy something online or if you go to a store and say, well, can you order it for me and get to me? If you don't have that, like in two days, it's like, this is terrible. So, I mean, the bar has been raised big time. And so we live in that world. We have to compete for, for that. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the, no, to the point about omni-channel, no customer ever uses those words. That's not, they just want to buy what they want to buy, when and where they want to buy it. And it's us, it's up to us to make that seamless and not make it a thing. Just say, look, what do you need? When do you need it? Where do you want to get it from? Let's go. That's what we try totally. to do. Yeah, well, it feels obvious. I know there are these local um, style stores, which are all about convenience. Is that are you guys going in deep on that across um, across the nation? Is are more of those coming? Um, are those working out? Yeah, so we have a handful of those, and what they are is they're. I mean, they're only a couple thousand square feet, and they don't have merchandise in them. They're more about services. So we have these services that we have in a store, but it's not always convenient for a customer to go into a mall or. a store. And so what we've done is done a handful of these locals and in, in, in populated uh, neighborhoods that I have a, a good concentration of customers for us. And we use them as just kind of a convenience service center. So from that point of view, yeah, it's good. It's, it's back to that point I made about leveraging physical assets to support the digital part of the business. And that's, that's exactly what that does. And it's things like it's they can pick up stuff. They can return stuff. We do alterations there. That's probably the biggest activity we do is alterations. Um, now, you know, we have rack stores. We have full line stores. We have local. So all of it comes into play. Um, will we have more locals? I, I think we could. We're certainly open. To, we have them and they've, they've worked. Uh, I think it's just it's an ongoing way of trying to leverage what we have and put it to use the best possible way so that, you know, there's an efficiency to it too. For sure. Well, what's the customer activity in stores? Is it what I'm hearing from some that there is almost like revenge shopping where people are just so excited to be out. <laughs> you don't really need to offer a bells and whistle experience. They just want to be out and shopping. But I don't yeah. know. Or, or do you? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if, if you're a business like ours, there's nothing that we carry that people need. We carry things people want. So it's elective. They don't have to come in here. I mean, you know, we're not an essential services company. So we really rely on people buying things for all kinds of qualitative reasons. Um, I mean, there's quantitative things too. There's objective things about, I, I need some clothes. I, my, my, my clothes don't fit. I need new clothes. But there's a lot of places you can buy a pair of pants. You don't necessarily have to do it from us. So I just think we're really uh, aware and thoughtful that we have to extend ourselves to customers. We just can't be presumptuous that they need us and they're going to come in. So the one thing I can tell you about what probably stimulates business more than anything is when we have newness and kind of almost that inspirational part of what shopping is and people go in and they, you know, they, they see something they weren't planning on buying and they buy it or, and that happened, that discovery happens online as, as well. Um, but when you get new things coming in there that are exciting to customers, that is really, as an evergreen proposition, what probably is the best indicator of good sales results. 
For sure. In my eyes, you have this powerhouse merchandising. I don't know. Like we're honoring Sam on the Glossy 50 this year. And like, I know, yeah, I know that Gian, I know Gian from High Snobiety in charge of men's. And I know Ricky from Vogue is doing women's. Oh, wow. I just feel like what a group that's, I don't know, keeping discovery and excitement alive right now. Tell me about this. I mean, merchandising is pretty much, I, along with the customer service, everything. But tell me about this team that's coming together, like from publishing, from what what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> what is happening? Well, look, I, I, it goes back to this idea that, I mean, our success is really going to ultimately be about all these people that do these jobs for us. And, you know, guys like Sam and merchandising and, and Ricky and Gian that, you know, bridge this, editorial and this curation and storytelling part with merchandising and marketing that, you know, bringing that all together. Uh, they're really talented people, but they're, you know, just an example of the talented people that we have there. They might be a little bit more high profile than some, but um, they're good at their job. And I'm super grateful <laughs> for people like that because you know, they're into it. I mean, and you know, for, if you know those three people, what, is really clear about it is they're really into it. They like all this stuff. It's not just like, oh my God, this is my job and uh, it's the worst. I mean, they're, they they really like this stuff. They like fashion. They like customers. They, they like retailing. Um, they like storytelling. And, uh, you know, it, it makes for a great situation for us that we're able to a- attract people like that into our business because uh, you need talented people like that. For sure. Um, So we've talked a lot on Glossy about your innovation. Years ago, it was um, in terms of your merchandising, bringing in direct-to-consumer brands, um, winning them over. Maybe they had never sold in a wholesale um, environment or retail with a retail partner. And also more recently, which is maybe a separate question, but... um, brands like Good American that are really like seeing your praises for putting inclusive sizing, that sizing across the board, the full spectrum on one rack versus a separate, maybe plus size department, innovation in merchandising outside of just discovery. Um, is that, I mean, I don't know, is it like a hard sell? Somebody comes up with the idea in house and it's like, yeah, we're going there, <laughs> going there. Uh, Duh. Well, not really. I mean, if, if you're paying attention and you're letting the customer be your guide on that stuff, I mean, what it mostly speaks to is the difference between values and practices, right? So the practices, the tactics about how we help customers evolve and change, the values and the cultural aspects of what we're trying to do and how you know we're relevant to people, um, that that stuff really doesn't change. You, you try to build on it. So your point about D to C brands. So I mean, in my lifetime, that every brand that existed here pretty much didn't sell on their own. They relied on a multi-brand retailer like us to sell their stuff. They were wholesalers and we are retailers. And that's kind of how it worked. And over time, every brand learned like, huh, with the advent of the internet and all this stuff, we can just sell direct to customers. Maybe I, maybe I don't need to have this middleman involved in this. And that's true uh, to a degree. And um, so it's, it's really... It's really changed. I mean, every brand that we carry, almost every brand we carry, you can buy out there directly from that brand. Um, But what is also true is, and you'll see with 
all these D to C brands that we've worked with, and there's been a ton of them, is that there reaches a point where it's hard for them to scale. There, you know, you 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 need the benefit of a lot of eyeballs, a lot of customers, a lot of traffic coming to your site or your stores, and that's hard to do when you got a mono brand situation going on. So what what we can do for them is like, well, yeah, we've got thirty four million customers or whatever it is. And, you know, if you sell us, there's a chance to expose your products to all kinds of people that might not know anything about them and might not make that journey to your site or your store specifically, because maybe they're not very familiar with what your brand is. And so your choice is you can spend a lot of money trying to market your brand and hopefully they learn about it that way. Or people can learn about your brand by bumping into it at Nordstrom and or having our sales people recommend it or, you know, having it on our homepage or what have you. And so that, that has been played out a lot of times. And so there is, we think we are part of the recipe of what can make a brand successful. Um, now we have to compete for that because they don't need to sell everybody. And they say, well, gosh, maybe, maybe we'll only be in one department store. So which one's it going to be? And then it's up to us to say, well, why should it be us? And then, you know, we talk about the quality of our customers, the amount of customers we have, you know, their, their loyalty to us in a lot of ways. We talk about the mix of what we do and how we tend to attract a customer with a more modern point of view. And in a lot of cases, some a, a younger customers, a lot of discovery that happens in our stores. There's a lot of trust with us. So people, you know, like discovering things there. And then, you know, are we good business partners? Are we are we transactional with these companies or are we more collaborative with these companies? And I guess we've just decided that it's best to try to find the mutual benefit. You know, like there's, we're both trying to do something here and there's a lot of mutual benefit to focus on rather than trying to win a negotiation against each other. And, um, you know, again, it's not always perfect on that score, but that's what we try to do. And I do think it's important that we attract brands like that, that you don't see everywhere. It makes us feel uh, special and, and different for customers. And that's an important part of our recipe. Are you bending your own rules like pretty far these days? Like like I said, the Good American example, maybe they were like, we'll sell with you if you <laughs> give us the full size range. Uh -oh. um, and like things like dropping like off off seasonal or whatever drop drops more often. Um, and then I know that, you know, some brands are really hesitant to sell wholesale and I know e-concessions is a, a growing booming idea, correct? And yeah, what, what, what's happening, I guess, what, what does it take to establish or maintain those great relationships? Well, it goes back to, um, no customer has ever asked us what our commercial relationship is with a brand, whether it's a concession or a wholesale or a drop ship. Right? They don't care. I mean, they, they just want what they want when they want it from who they want it from and all that stuff. So what we try to do is not make that the focal point. Those are those are transactional things that we shouldn't get too hung up about. It's, it's really getting the mutual benefit of can we not find the common ground? Whether that means it's a wholesale relationship or a concession relationship, how do we set that up so that we both win? And when you have that going on, then it's super powerful. So I think your point about breaking rules, I, I don't think, first of all, those rules are made to be broken. They're not rules. They're more like practices, legacy practices, where in the past, 
I mean, there was really only one, like if you think about my dad's generation doing business, there was only one way of doing it. There were wholesalers and retailers and people went to stores and they bought things and they brought them to the store and customers came in. And if you were the best store in the area or the mall, then you were golden. Well, now, I mean, it doesn't matter. Well, it matters some, it matters a lot, but it doesn't entirely matter what that we're the best store in, say, Tacoma, Washington. Because that customer isn't limited by what's in Tacoma, Washington. They can just go home and go online and buy the best of what the world has to offer. So you, I mean, you got to compete at a much higher level, even in these regional uh, types of stores. So the upshot of all that is it's great for the customer. Um, and it takes creativity and flexibility and agility on the part of retailers and wholesalers to try to figure out how to be there for customers. And we need each other, frankly. So I, it seems that's the, the truth. So, I mean, you, you mentioned like Good American and some of these brands. And, you know, we have great relationships with those guys. But it starts with what are you looking to accomplish and how, how can we be part of that and, and what they can do for us, what we can do for them. And, and again, that's where the excitement comes in because there's just a lot of common ground there. Well, we have to talk holiday coming up. I mean, I'm sure you're not in like crunch time coming up with holiday. This has been long established of what you're going to do this year. Um, yes. Do you guys start earlier in terms of your, I don't know, campaigns? What's going on? And, and how are you kind of keeping it fresh and exciting this year? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yes. Holiday is such a pivotal time. It always has been. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it seems like it's more than ever, though. Uh, there's a lot riding on doing well in this important season. So as such, there's a lot of planning and preparation that goes into it. And you talked about, you know, starting early and what have you. And we've had a, a long held tradition around here that we try to celebrate the holidays one at a time. So one of the things you would see is we do not decorate our stores in like full Christmas or full holiday um, displays until after Thanksgiving. And customers really seem to like that. But in a lot of ways, there, there's, a, there's an and to that. And that is customers want to buy gifts earlier or they want to buy Christmas decorations. So what we've had to figure out over time is how can we actually have a good gifting offer in October, November? How can we have holiday decor since we have, you know, a home kind of business? How can we sell that stuff without looking at like, my God, Nordstrom is celebrating Christmas in September. What is going on here? So there's some finesse to that. Um, but ultimately it, it comes back to, giving the customers what they want and giving them choice. And for those uh, out there, and I'm not one of those people, but that is really prepared and gets their Christmas shopping <laughs> done early, we want to be viewed as a great resource for them too. Not just the people coming in here with three days to go. We need to do some heroic effort to connect them with the gift. That happens obviously as well. Um, but I think ultimately what, what we're talking about is how could we be more important uh, to people when thinking about gift giving, that we're more top of mind about Nordstrom is a great place to go to buy a gift. I remember there was a time we had like a new Nordstrom. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, and it was at West County Shopping Center. <laughs> and yeah. I remember I had friends that worked there and I was like, went in for Black Friday and I was like, "Where? where's your big sale? <laughs> she, they go, we're, it was like this, we're Nordstrom. <laughs> anyway, that didn't sound good. <laughs> no, but like literally it was like, I was like, oh, I, I, I was like in the, on the bargain hunt. But I know you, you have your amazing half yearly sale. Like do our promotions becoming a bigger part of holiday, I would say, or this year? Well, I mean, the, the promotional stuff typically has to do with if, if retailers and brands aren't experiencing the rate of sale they need, 
They got to figure out a way to clear that stuff out. I mean, the best formula is that you sell everything at regular price, but the the finesse it takes to get the perfect quantity in the perfect time and understand exactly what customers want, it just, that's an impossible feat. I mean, we, no one has that crystal ball. So when you see promotions happening, it's usually a result of the concern about, I think we have too much inventory and we can't carry through all this post Christmas. Because what is, what is also true is, a lot of stuff that we carry, like the minute Christmas is over, it is, it's just not as valuable. It, people don't want it anymore. And so you've got to be really thoughtful about that. Make sure you've got the, the selling period that you need, that you come in with good value and and that the, the products are exciting, what have you. And But yeah, I think ultimately for us, we're trying to we're trying to flow in newness so we sell more things at regular price, but we're all, you know, we also have to be competitive. And if if things are marked down, then you know we have to mark it down too. And so anyway, I it, it's the same thing every season. You know, everyone's trying to have really good plans. I think what's been challenging the last few years is just given the macro environment of our world, it's been really hard to plan because things they change. You know, there's all kinds of circumstances that have gone on. Um, that change quickly. And if you think about a business like ours, I mean, we're, we're buying and planning and doing all this stuff, you know, solid six months out in many cases. And so, you know, the best decision you can make around merchandising is the one you can make today for tomorrow, but we don't really have that flexibility. So, you know, we, yeah, that's the calculus of the whole thing. Yeah. Well, hey, I'm excited for the holidays. I would think that- Well, we look at, holidays are fun for us too, and our, our people like it, and the stores are energetic, fun places to be, and uh, and a lot of that's because customers are excited about it too. So we, we try to make it a feel-good thing, that's for sure. We are running out of time. Tell me a sneak peek for 2023. <laughs> a sneak peek? Oh, man. What's to come? What are you excited about? Well, I think part of it, and this is a this is an operational thing, but it's been so challenging the last few years that if if we have some level of stability and, and predictability, we can plan our business better. I think we can do well. We've we've had a lot of challenges. I think trying to react really fast to the changing dynamics that are happening out there, and our business is not the world's most agile. So. We've we've done two things. We've we've tried to get a lot better at, at planning, a lot more focused on that. We try to use data in a better way so that we can have more objective decisions. And then we've just tried to improve our processes so that we can cut down lead times and so we have more agility. And um I think there's so many valuable things that we've learned over the last couple of years that have been challenging that put you in a better position to be successful going forward. So We've, we've got a lot of good things going for us. I think, you know, we've been on this journey about how to make customers' lives easier and how to leverage our physical assets and our digital assets and some of these things we've talked about today. But hopefully what you see with each, you know, year that goes by, certainly, but even months that go by, that we just get a little bit better at all that stuff all the time. And there's been a lot of work behind the scenes on a lot of logistical and operational things that I think will bear fruit for us. And the outcome of that will be it, it'll make things better for customers. Right on. Well, Pete, this was a fantastic conversation. Thank you for being here. Well, you're so nice to invite me. I enjoyed it too. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Be sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to the Glossy Podcast. See you next week.